0: All right, well, hey, if you would turn in your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians six, and uh we shall read it and another passage, and then uh, we've got a lot to uh, cover today. In fact, I got three hunks of I got three files here. So here we are, First Corinthians six, starting in verse nine, and this is God's word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, every, anytime I see a, an example of the Trinity uh, in the Scriptures, I love pointing it out. You've got God the Father at the end of verse 9, and of course at the end of verse 11, excuse me, 10, and, and the verse 11 too. You've got uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got the Holy Spirit of God. That's a Trinitarian gospel, ladies and gentlemen, uh, very important to our understanding. And I'll make reference to that later on in this message too. Flip over, if you would, to the book of First Timothy. Uh, Chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which. I have been entrusted. And so you can understand that uh, a speed limit sign is put up. And uh, if uh, you come upon it and you're going 55 and the sign says 35, well, then you know you've transgressed because the law has been shown uh, shown to you, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, in front of us, we have the end of a short series and two different Bible passages. And, so, and, and it, it's really two lists of various sins. And so we're not going to... Um, uh, preach through these passages so much as as we'll teach through them, uh, using them as kind of an anchor. But let me start first with a question. And I think I've asked you this uh, uh, in the past. I probably asked our Grace Group this too. But just ponder this with me for a second. Um, why has God allowed various heresies over the the entire period of the church? Why has God allowed various heresies to emerge? Um, and even rise to the top and uh, infect the church at different times in history. Why does God do that? Isn't that a curious thing that heresies would rise up and kind of take over? And, and um, even, even you know, the, 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 uh, the uh, Word of Faith gospel is all over Africa. I mean, it's, uh, it's not healthy. There's an unhealthy spread of the gospel all over Africa. Why do those kinds of things happen? Why does God allow it? Well, um, there was a theologian uh, named Athanasius. You may have heard that of an early church uh, uh, father, Athanasius. He was a, uh, an Egyptian uh, theologian in uh, the fourth century or so. He was born at the end of, I think, 298 or something like that. He lived into the 300s. And what, one of the things he wrote about um, with uh, great force and precision was the doctrine of the Trinity, and the reason that was such a big thing is that this heresy had arisen from this guy named Arius, if you ever heard of the Arian heresy, and, and what, what he did was he uh, attacked the deity of Jesus Christ, okay? And so his, his basic point, uh, to distill it, was um, um, made, not begotten, that Jesus was made, not begotten. Now, what do we say? Begotten, not made. Critical point. Made not begotten means that Jesus is a creature that God made and that Jesus isn't, uh, isn't the God-man and so on. Well, this debate raged on. And by the way, it wasn't the first time that the, the doctrine of the Trinity had been assaulted. Uh, there were two other major heresies before uh, Arius. But it, all to say, uh, Athanasius writes directly to this problem in the church. And that problem, that heresy was a stronghold for 55 years. Think about that. The early church, 55 years, there's this assault on the the doctrine of the Trinity. Why does it do that? Why is it it allowed to take hold in the church? I counted online 53 different major heresies over the course of 2,000 years, 53. Why do they rise up? Why does God allow assaults on the truth of his word that would even last for years and even divide the church? Why would God do that? Here's the answer. To drive the saints back to the Word, and notice how carefully I put that—to drive the saints back to the Word. Okay, they're the only ones who care about it anyway. So heresies bubble up in the church, and what does it do? It causes God's people to go, wait, wait, wait. I I hear what you're saying, uh, but what what saith Scripture? It drives us back to the Bible to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is God really teaching in His Word? Um, and that leads me to a very difficult thing. I had a a question um, uh, presented to me after last week, and indeed, I asked almost the same question to Rosaria Butterfield. Who came to Rosaria Butterfield Thursday night? That was well worth it, and I'll tell you, uh, the staff had a dinner with her at 4.30. That's the earliest I've eaten dinner in a long time since my grandma, grandpa took me to a Czechoslovakian restaurant years ago. But, um, so 4.30, we're eating dinner in the conference room, and we got Rosaria Butterfield for an hour and a half. And uh, it was quite lovely. And she was very, you know, she was very lectury when she was here, but she was just freely talking and all that. And Dr. Young was next to her. He had his glasses on. He was breathing his hot breath all over her food, you know. Um, now, darling, uh, you know, it was, it was really cool. It was just really cool. And so he had a list of questions that the staff had, had emailed to him, and, and we were almost done, and I threw one in there, and I didn't say it very well. I, I, I like, stumbled all over it, all nervous and everything. But I, I wanted to say, my question, I wanted my question to be, assess the threat of revisionist theology. I, I said something like, blood, 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 revisionist theology. It was awkward, but she still knew what I, what I meant. You know, in the past, it's been this attack from the outside, right? So people say, oh, you Christians, you're crazy. The attack is from the outside. You guys are nuts. You believe in fairy tales. You're all stupid and red states and all that kind of stuff. Um, But now the attack is bubbling up from the inside. It's an heretical attack where they use the same kind of terminology we do. They talk about context, and they talk about the first readers, and and they say all kinds of things I I say uh, when I I preach and teach. And um, So the the debate seems to be from within. And so her answer was this. I said, you know, is that a great threat? The threat's different. And uh, she said this, and this is, you're gonna have to ponder this. She said that we're talking about two different categories. And what she means by talking about two different categories is this. There is such a thing as an intramural debate in the church, isn't there? I mean, for instance, we have an immersion baptism service at 1215 today, all right? So some people are going to get dunked. But next week, Dr. Young may baptize an infant out there. We have two modes of baptism, and you have two different camps of people who have studied God's Word, who are, have been led to what they believe to be a biblical position, and they say, I'm supporting with scriptures. And you got another side that says, well, no, this is our theological system, and this fits into our take on the Bible." And and, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I firmly believe that John Piper and R.C. Sproul are both going to heaven. You can understand that, right? It's a, it's a debate within the church. You have two um, biblically supported positions by people who love God's word and want to yield to it and so on. Um, so I think that Piper and Sproul will both be in heaven. I think Dr. Young and John Otley will both be in heaven. But I can't say that about um, Athanasius and Arius. I think Athanasius is going to be in heaven, but if Arius really doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if he really doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, well, guess what he doesn't have? The very righteousness of God afforded us in the perfect ministry and life of the God-man. He doesn't have a federal head. That's a critical problem. And so what I'm saying to you is that's not an intramural debate. That's, That's a debate between someone who is in the household of faith and someone who isn't in the household of faith. And I say that with trepidation because for all the polish and the sincerity and uh, the cordial dialogue and the heartfelt analysis and the heartbreaking stories that you'll read from the revisionist theologians that that look at this issue and they go, wow, can this really be reconciled to the Scriptures? And can I still have my son or my daughter or my cousin or my mom or my dad um, uh, and embrace their homosexual lifestyle? Can I do that? Um, it's nothing more, ladies and gentlemen, than the same old offensive from Genesis 3, which is, hath God said? The ESV puts it this way. Did God actually say, it's the same old, it's the same old threat? Um, hey, uh, here's this behavior, and uh, I don't want to give it up. And uh, did God really say <laughs> that it's, that's not cool? All right? So it's no light things, friends. Um, it, it 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 is troubling to my spirit. I, I have I've used a well every, every time I've uh, done a message here. I, I anchor myself in the scriptures and I'm I try to I try to teach the word as we wrestle through this issue. Okay, but I've I've relied heavily on two sources. One of them is Kevin DeYoung, which I can't recommend enough. I mean, this is a great textual analysis. It's got objections answered in the back. I've read it three times and uh, have marked it all up. I can't recommend this book enough. It's great. This one, I don't recommend you read. Probably not healthy for your soul unless you're trying to do something like I am, which is put together a case. But, but So this is the other side. This is a big e on the other side, one of the big names. But let me tell you something, folks. Look at the title, God and the Gay Christian. Friends, the, the, the sum of Rosaria's answer is that this can't be a reality. This can't exist. We're talking about different categories. We're not talking about an intra-church dialogue. We're talking about two different categories. Um, and I, what, what can be said is God and the confused Christian. That can be said, God and the confused Christian. But God and the gay Christian, that doesn't exist, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe what the Scriptures say. And I'll tell you, this is one of the things that's so scary about it. You know who the first endorsee of this book is? Tony Campolo. Yeah. So now what do we do with that? What do we do with Tony Campolo? Um, like I say, this could be God and the confused Christian, but you know what? I don't think Tony Campolo is confused. So now what do we do? I'm just saying, ladies and gentlemen, that it is, it is a hard and complex issue. It's a hard truth. And I take no delight in swiping away at bad theology when real people are in the crosshairs of God's judgment but um, we must be tender, ladies and gentlemen, but at the same time, we've got to come at it with the precision of a surgeon with a scalpel in his hand going after cancer uh, when it comes to truth and the church. So, all that's set up to say this. This last installment will be on these two passages, um, and um, we're going to look at the issue of homosexuality, uh, talk about a few closing thoughts and arguments, and and, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it all up, all right? So, Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, where we started here, has, um, has uh, two important Greek words in it. And, and the passage in 1 Timothy has one important Greek word, okay? Um, and, um, you know, whereas Romans 1 is extremely clear, uh, this one, uh, they kind of take some, some wiggling liber- liberties in it, all right? So the verse, the verse in question here is 1 um, Corinthians 6, verse 9, which says, um, yeah, hang on a sec. It says... Um, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And that same, it's rendered exactly the same way, even though it's, t- it's two words in 1 Corinthians, it's one word in, in uh, 1 Timothy, it's rendered the same way in the ESV, men who practice homosexuality. And uh, even though uh, it's, it's rendered exactly the same way, there, there's, there's two words in this, in this passage here, two words. First one is malakoi, which means soft, all right. It's also used in the book of Matthew like a soft uh, material. All right. So if somebody's selling like silky, a silky material or something, it's soft. Okay. So the idea is soft, uh, and in the context here, hooked to the, uh, uh, the, the male sexual behavior, uh, the idea is effeminate. Uh, in its context, it's kind of like you've got the soft, effeminate, receiving party in this equation, and then you've got you know, where a woman belongs, and then you've got the other party where you've got the, the aggressor, okay? The other word in First Corinthians and in First Timothy is arsenok, arsenok oite, and it's a hybrid word, and it's never been used before Paul uses it in First Corinthians. You can't find it in any other ancient literature. It's basically Paul putting a couple words together and uh, making a hybrid word uh, homosexual, okay, and um, it comes from two Greek words, likely borrowed from Leviticus, from the Septuagint. And you know, I'm not trying to throw a bunch of fancy words, but do you know what the Septuagint is? Do you know what that is? It's the it's the Old Testament translated into into Greek. All right, so that would have been Paul's go-to text. Um, uh, he he would he would know the Old Testament in Greek, okay. And so there's two words that show up in Leviticus, uh, Arsenos koitin. And so he, he, he takes those, he borrows them and makes a hybrid word, and he uses them here. And now uh, you've got to remember, um, he was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was trained by the big shot, renowned rabbi of the day. I mean, Paul knew the Old Testament. And so uh, when you say it's likely he took two words from Leviticus, that, that's almost silly to say. He most surely did take a couple of, of verses out of uh, Leviticus. He's not just, just picking them out of the air. He puts them together, and literally, the meaning is males in the marriage bed. All right. So these two words that he's put together um, are me, saying, which means male, and coite, uh, which means intercourse. And um, just so you, just so you know, um, this is, um, yeah, this is Strong's concordance. This that that word coite. Um, a couch, um, cohabitation, bed, chambering, sleep chamber, a place where you lie down, okay? Uh, and the meaning goes on. By implication, the male sperm, uh, conception, all right? So you get the idea? Uh, that, with that word, you, you know, um, the, the first word uh, means male. The second word means a place where people lie down and there's male sperm involved. Do you get what's happening there? You understand what that activity, what the, what the Bible's trying to say about that activity? You understand what's going on, all right? So that's the idea, men having sex with men. And so, um, let me get my other file here. Yeah, folks, um, I just got online, and I, I use this thing called Bible Hub. I don't know if you've ever been, ever been on Bible Hub, but I use it all the time. I've hardly written a sermon uh, in the last five years, seven years without getting on Bible Hub, you can look at 26 translations on the same verse all in a column. And so I get on, I get on it, and I, I look at it, and I'm like, wow. So um, this, this soft, effeminate meets this man with another man issue. Uh, here's, how, here's how all these Bible translations translated it. Um, men who have sex with men. Male prostitutes who practice homosexuality. Uh, English standard, men who practice homosexuality, Berean study Bible, uh, men who submit to nor perform homosexual acts. Uh, it goes on, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, effeminate homosexuals, effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind. The King James uses, Version uses that, as do others, real politely, abusers of themselves with mankind. It's kind of a nice way of saying, yeah, the dudes are, are getting it on. Um, Other translations, anyone practicing homosexuality, male prostitutes, homosexuality, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, effeminate men who have sexual relations with men, males lying down with males, homosexuals, uh, effeminate, not homosexuals. I'm only halfway done. Every single one of them is translated, homosexuals, sodomites, uh, defiling oneself, going against the the nature of mankind. And then the same thing in in the First Timothy passage. I could just read one after another, after another, after another. Practice homosexuality. Homosexuals, 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 divide themselves with mankind. Homosexuals, homosexuals. It just goes on. 26. So I've got 52 Bible passages that, that say the same thing the same way. Now I want you to think about um, Bible translation teams. You know, they just don't uh, get a bunch of dummies together. They get experts in the language, expert theologians that know the nuances of the languages. They're not getting Jimmy Young or anybody else. They're not getting preachers. They're getting dusty, musty, you know, back of academia. Experts who know the language like crazy, like Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars, and they all translate it the same way. Teams of people, and they all come out. 26 Bible translations over hundreds of years translate it the same way, the same way, the same way, the same way. I'll tell you, too, in my office, um, I've got um, a commentary library that's awesome. I mean, it's the most usable commentary library of anybody I know personally, I promise you. It's just, I built it over years carefully. And one whole wall of my office is Bible commentaries. Genesis 1-1 starts here, and then goes all the way across, shelves later in the corner. Uh, Revelation twenty two twenty one 21 is down there. The whole wall is full of Bible commentaries. And you know what they are? It's studied people and scholars, and some are packaged sermons and some are really technical. But what I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, is you've got people laboring over what the Bible means. You have people laboring over translations. And when they do that, you see on this issue um, the, the clarity with which they, they land homosexuality, homosexual behavior. It's, you can't massage it, it comes out uh, by translation teams and, and scholars. The same way, almost every time, in orthodoxy. All right. So, um, the issue then becomes with revisionist theologians: they go, "Yeah, <clears throat> that is tough. Uh, yeah, Romans one is tough. Especially, if it's in the New Testament. You can't just dismiss it as being Old Testament law and put a question mark on it there. And then in this in this passage, uh, wow, seems pretty com- conclusive." Amongst uh, uh, translation scholars, so the issue then really is: is this revisionist theologians will go, "Yeah, but is that really what Paul meant? I mean, he, was he really talking about homosexuality and, and monogamous relationships and, and and all that kind of stuff?" Um, now, it's been offered this uh, offered, offered this way. People will say of these these verses, it's this list of sins and homosexualities in there. They'll say things like, "Well." about men being soft, about effeminate and all that. They'll say, you know, we got to look at it culturally. And they'll say, well, uh, women were ill thought of at the time, not respected back in ancient cultures. Um, they were thought of as lesser people, women, okay? And so then to be weak was to be thought of to be a woman, and to be, uh, for a man to be soft was then for him to be effeminate. And so basically now everybody's offended. Um, and uh, and then it's also been offered that there were effeminate womanizers, like, like dandies. You know, like guys who are dandies and they're all spruced up, but they're kind of like gigolo types. You know, they're they're ladies' men, kind of like Howard. Uh, what's his name? Hugh Hefner. You know, he's always wearing silky jammies. You know, he's some kind of guy. He's manly, but he's wearing silky jammies and he's always relaxed and ready for action all the time. He just like, blech, blech you know, oily and gross. Um, and so they say, well, maybe it's, uh, it's not it's, he's effeminate uh, homosexual, um, you know, maybe soft in that way. One thing is for certain, which is this, that um, the sins on this list are a behavior. And uh, I mean, you, you look at this, you have... Uh, Sexually immoral, that's a behavior. Idolaters, that's something you engage in. Adulterers, that's something you engage in. Homosexuality, that's something you engage in. Stealing is something you engage in. Greedy, drunk, so on. Swindlers, those those are behaviors. So we better get it right because the stakes are very high because somebody ain't going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty big. The reason it almost seems hidden in the ESV, this softness, uh, is that it's kind of tucked into this other behavior, this homosexuality. And re- re- revisionists will say, well, listen, it's not really about homosexuality. It's more about, like, Michael Jackson kind of stuff, you know, man-boy relationships. That's really the prohibition here. Um, another twist um, is, uh, well, shoot, actually a study on how words morph in this book. But here's how, here's how he ends his idea here. Um, yeah, check this out. Oh. Um <sighs> Yeah, he says um merely changing anachronistic language such as homosexual to men who have sex with men, as some modern translators have done, is a little better. Such sweeping language still obscures the fundamental differences between how Paul understood same-sex relations and the modern understanding of sexual orientation. You get what's happening. They're saying, yeah, Paul had his own baggage and couldn't really understand what we now know, what we now know, all right? And um, it goes on to say, in doing so, it wrongly attributes to Paul a position on a hot-button issue he never faced, the question of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul viewing the American situation right now? Can you imagine him going, what in the world is this craziness? Um, And then he goes on to, to talk, about the transformative power of the gospel. I mean, it's terminology that we use. It's just so heartbreaking. All that to say, ladies and gentlemen, can I read from the other side? Where's the other side? There it is. Um, here's, here's a little sanity. I've got a couple quotes that I've got to read to you, but this is awesome, y'all. Um, yeah, check this. Here's what this, this Kevin DeYoung book says. Um... If Paul wanted to shock Timothy and upset his fellow Jews and blow up the prevailing ethos in the early church by allowing for committed same-sex relationships, Paul picked an impossibly obscure way of introducing such a radical change. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? If Paul's saying, hey, 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 Um, this this homosexual behavior, it's not all bad. Um, You just shouldn't be too passionate. I mean, if you're straight, then don't act gay. If you're gay, don't act straight. Otherwise, that's sinful. That's, that's kind of how they massage it, all right? But, the, the, but he goes on to say, if, if Paul was using the word for uh, pedophiles, why wouldn't he use uh, pedastus pedasteris? Why doesn't he use a word that, that would clearly depict that? Why is it twisty, turny, and so on? Likewise, if Paul wanted to inform his readers... That uh, he was only referring to exploitive forms of homosexuality, like people being exploited, brought into uh, homosexual prostitution, and so on. Why wouldn't he have coined a term from a portion of the Mosaic Law uh, where all sex involving a man and a woman is forbidden? Um, He goes on to say, um, Yeah, are we really supposed, uh, yeah, are we really? to suppose that Paul, just after urging excommunication for sexual sin, and just as he references the Mosaic Law, and just before he anchors his sexual ethic in the Genesis creation story, meant to say, did he really mean to say, obviously, I'm not talking about two men in a committed uh, long-term relationship. Why why is it so twisty-turny? If he had really meant to communicate such a message to the Corinthians or to Timothy, how would that have been obvious to any of those readers? You know, last time we were in uh, Romans one, and it was kind of a triple refrain um, that they exchanged truth for idols. They exchanged truth for a lie. They exchanged what is natural for unnatural. There's that that triple that triple thing. And in each situation, what does it say after that? And God gave them up. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. Um, you know, this, this female uh, commentator says, I believe that Paul used the word exchanged in Romans 1 to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. And that's really it, y'all. That's really it. I know it's complex, and uh, the issue of homosexuality is uh, full of real lives with real aspirations and real longings and real desire to build a family and, and, and have the real relationships and all that. But I'm saying the Bible is clearly saying that homosexuality, homosexual behavior is not okay. It's not okay. It's not scriptural. It doesn't reconcile with the gospel. You can reject that. You can accept that. But that's the distilled version of it. Now, look at uh, chapter um, 6 of Corinthians one more time. Verse 9. Do you know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a big list of sins, isn't it? A big list of sins. And uh, folks, I bet you're guilty of some of those, aren't you? I mean, you read that list and, and you go, wow, uh, you know, it's kind of like Rosaria said, if, we're, if we don't think we're guilty of all these sins, um, that we don't believe Jesus. Um, because uh, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about what's going on inside the heart. God judges the thoughts and intentions, the motives behind everything we do. God sees all the inner workings. And uh, having a lustful thought is, uh, is, is uh, as guilty as doing a lustful thing and, and doing something hateful in your heart is as guilty as going and murdering. Uh, God, God, God looks on the heart. Um, and so the revisionist who comes at scriptures and, and sees a list like that, they're thinking, uh, how can my situation fit into this? That's a totally different perspective than ours, ladies and gentlemen. Um, ours is, God, what is your sovereign will over me? Totally different situation. We're coming at the Scriptures in a different way. We're coming at it from a believer's perspective. So our aim is not to find a loophole in a long list of sins. It is to see that when sin is claimed as an identity, it is anti-gospel, and it is thus anti-Christ. It is anti-gospel to be anti-Christ. Do you understand that if you take a flag and you say, okay, I'm going to plant this flag, bam, on this sin, and I'm going to say, that's my identity, then that means you don't have an identity in Christ. It's a big, it's a big payment, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, it's a big exchange. It's an exchange. When you say, look, uh, this is a sin, this is a, a behavioral thing, I'm choosing to do this thing, but I'm going to put the stake down and say, this is my identity. You could, other, you could do it with some of the other sins. You could say, okay, what about um, greedy? Greedy. Yeah, sure, I'm a little bit greedy, but you know what? Bam, I'm greedy. I'm a greedy guy. Um, I'm hot-headed. You know why? Because I'm Italian. I'm hot-headed. It's not a sin problem. Just Italian. Will you stake your flag on that? that that's, that's not an identity in Jesus Christ. That's not a, being a person under the book. It's saying, excuse my sin, because I'm going to embrace it. I'm telling you, that is, that is treacherous to the soul. Um, and there's, it's no small thunder. Now, one of the things that's so insidious about this is if you just flip through the, the bibliography at the end. I mean, the very, first, the very first guy he quotes is Charles Hodge's systematic theology. That's a, that's a big name. That's a safe name, Charles Hodge, and you go, well, oh, he's quoting Charles Hodge. Wow! And then he quotes all kinds of uh, philosophers. Oh yeah, look, Wilberforce is in there. C.S. Lewis, um, R.C. Sproul. You've got uh, philosophers, you know. Um, oh, who? Uh, Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, Seneca, and uh, other people. Oh, um, N.T. Wright, Grudem, John Piper. He's got this, these names in here. And then you look at the back, and he's got his little. He's got his little. Uh, his ministry down here. You know what it's called? Matthew Vines is the founder of the Reformation Project. Doesn't that sound legit? Wow, it's even hijacking terminology we love, the Reformation Project, a Bible-based nonprofit organization that seeks to reform church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. It's frightening, ladies and gentlemen, because they're using the same kinds of terminology, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's clever. You, you take little snippets from guys in the, in the good guy camp, and uh, it kind of turns everything murky and confusing, okay? Um, but here's what I think we need to do, folks, as I see it. First, we need to remember who wrote the Bible ultimately. Who is it? God. God. The Holy Spirit of God. All right, so we don't have the luxury of saying, well, you know, Paul grew up in this culture and he really didn't understand what we now know and, and uh, he wasn't as enlightened as we are and he really didn't have a basis for uh, long term monogamous relationships back there. And, you know, homosexuality wasn't, uh, you know, kind of like uh, it is today. Well, my goodness, it's the Corinthian church. Some dude married his stepmother. I mean, it was goofed up. There, there, there was sexually immoral all over Corinth. Now, that's why Paul's writing his first letter. Um, yeah, there, I think he was able to observe human behavior and go, oh, I guess, I guess there are people who identify uh, as, as homosexual and those who don't. So we have to remember who wrote the Bible. It is God the Holy Spirit. God is telling us what he wants. God is telling us what sin is. He's making definitions for us, not some guy who's trapped in a culture and doesn't really know and doesn't, isn't really getting it right, okay? That's thing number, number one to remember. Thing number two is we need to take in the whole counsel of God, all right? We don't want to, um, it's not that we dissect things and try to find the little escape hatch so we can get on with our way. We have to look at the whole counsel of God. What does the whole counsel of God teach about his creation, about why a marriage is a man and woman? Why does this leave and cleave into a one flesh union? What that means? Why there's a federal headship in Genesis? Why there's a federal headship in Jesus? It's the whole counsel of God that weighs into this, okay? Not not picking and choosing. That's where, you, that's where you're able to make Scripture say what you wish it would say if you just isolate pieces of it and you don't take the whole counsel of God. You got that? So our safety, ladies and gentlemen, as we maneuver through things that are thrown at our faith and understanding is to say, God is the author of this book, not man. And we need to take the whole counsel of God into play as to what God does and doesn't want. All right. Um, last couple things. i got to read something to you again, and I know you're going to go, oh, he's reading again, but you know how Dr. Young will say, I'm, it's bad ped- pedagogy to read. You ever heard that? And then he'll say, but, okay, that's what I'm going to do to you too. All right? I know you don't want to be read to, but this is awesome. I just couldn't say it better. So I'm going to stay calm and cool. I'm going to read it and not rush over it. Listen to this. The authority of the Bible is at stake. That's the greater issue, ladies and gentlemen. The authority of the Scriptures is at stake. It's not surprising that on both sides, traditionalists and the revisionists have their conversion stories. On one side, men and women leave behind a life of homosexual practice and they come into the household of faith. And on the other side, people go, oh, that fundamentalism just weighed me down. Um, and they have a story on the other way where they've escaped this thing and now they're free and so on. Um, um, but he goes on to say this. um, I'm not saying that those on the revisionist side don't ever take the Bible seriously. Many of them do. But it's still the case that the turning point in coming to reject the historic view is often some sort of personal experience. Have I not been saying this the whole time? The basis, the turning point, is this personal experience. A gay friend, a lesbian daughter, a homosexual church member, a sense of emptiness, a sense of happiness, a sense of closeness to God. In most of the instances I read where people change their minds about homosexuality, either to embrace same-sex desires or to affirm those who do, it was first because of an experience, and then later, because they concluded that the Bible didn't have to contradict what they had come to believe through their experience. I've been saying that the whole way, ladies and gentlemen. The place where we need to start is God's word. In fact, I didn't, I didn't mention it. This is, a, is a, a main point, but I've got it up here. It's been up here the whole time. We must start and end in the word of God, friends, on this issue. We must start and end in the word of God. Now I close with this. You ever seen this guy? I, I've, I've run into this guy over and over uh, on the internet. He's, uh, he's a guy who identifies as a cat. You seen that guy? Oh, you haven't? I've seen that picture a million times. And there's a million other people that have bone implants and, and cheek implants. And you can see he's had his lip cut and he's got his teeth worked on. And um, it's just wild, hey? And uh, you see those little pegs in his, on his lip there? You know what those are for? Uh, that's to keep the uh, piercings open so that uh, he can put his whiskers in when he wants. So this is a man who identifies as a cat. Here's what he uh, used to look like, and that's what he looks like now. So he considers himself a cat. He identifies as a cat. Now, can I ask you a question, friends? Is that a cat? thinks he's a cat. Well, it's just sad, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, he ain't a cat. That's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. Um, he's a man. He's a human being. He's not a cat. He's a, he's a certain species, not a kitty. And uh, my point, ladies and gentlemen, is that that's, that's, that's a picture of a resistance of what is natural. That's the same exact thing of, on this issue. It's not, it's not so much this person identity, it's not so much this, this wanting companionship and loneliness and all that stuff. At its core, it's a rejection of God's design for how we're supposed to be, God's design at creation, based in creation, the complementarian, complementarianism of male and female, not just anatomically, but as... as, um, as, as um, I hate to use the word soulmates, but as, as one flesh, a one flesh union. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, to close it all, we must start and end in the Word of God if we're going to walk away from this issue with any kind of sanity. We have to be tender to the world around us. There's real hurt out there. Um, I take no pleasure in, in saying, me smart, you dumb. I, that's, 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 that's not the approach, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a simple Bible teacher, and I'm telling you on the authority of this book, that homosexuality is not a lifestyle, it's a behavior, it's a sin over which there is condemnation. And uh, so th- there are confused Christians, but there aren't gay ones, uh, saith the Scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father, um, it's uh, already heartbreaking to see that uh, the definition of marriage has been forever changed in our nation. And um, uh, the, the floodgates have been opened. Uh, it won't be uh, very many years before two and three and five and seven and ten people will be married to each other, and it'll just get stranger and stranger, and our kids will be pulled more and more into um, into, into some demented thought. Um, spare us, O oh God. Remember mercy again. Remember mercy um, steady your church. Show us what's true. Drive us back to your word. Let our hearts say, wait a second, Um, hath God said? And uh, then give us the grace to see what you've said. Um, Let us start and end in your word for your glory and in Jesus' name for the continuity and furtherance of the gospel, we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.